Last week I, w- I preached out of Judges chapter 6, and it's the first part of uh, uh, the, the life and the story of Gideon. And, and I like to think of Gideon and, and preach, preach his life in three parts. So last week was chapter 6. Chapter 7 I preached about a year and a half ago. So if you want to hear that one, uh, go back and listen to that. I'm, I think it's on the website. We're not going to do that. We're going to jump to chapter 8 because I've already done chapter 7 here. But I want to remind you just what those two chapters are about before we get into it. Last week we, in looking at uh, Judges chapter 6, we saw that Gideon was called in, in the midst of darkness in the land. That, that there was darkness all over around Israel. They were being raided by the Midianites, so much so that they had found caves to uh, hide in when the Midianites would come and raid their, their produce. And we, we looked at how that darkness and that fear had set into the, to uh, Israel and also marked their hero, Gideon. And that even though Gideon, in the midst of being called out of that, called by God to deliver his people, he struggled and one of the things that, that I think Gideon chapter 6 makes evident or abundantly clear is that though Gideon acts with faith, his faith is, is mixed with unbelief throughout. And we talked about how uh, faith in our lives is always mixed with unbelief, that, that we never do anything out of any, any sense of pure faith. And some of us get frustrated with that reality and we think that we're after some sort of quality of faith that we don't have. And what I want you to just remember about Gideon chapter 6 is that God does not refuse to use Gideon even though his faith is mixed with unbelief. Okay, chapter 7 is the great story where uh, Gideon's ar- uh, army is reduced down to 300 men. And uh, it, that sermon... And that passage really is about how God works in weakness. That God's strength is actually made manifest in his weakness. And, and back in that sermon when I preached it before, I talked about how we often look at Gideon in that, in that, um, in that story. And you know, it, has the, it, has, it, it, it tells about how God weeds, whittles down his numbers. And one is that he has the soldiers drink out of the stream and... Those who bend down and lap the water out of the stream are, are not taken, and the ones who pull the water in their mouths and out of, in, into their hands. And people have, have tried to say God was looking at that, and the ones that lapped out of the stream like a dog, uh, the reason he picks them is, or he, he discards them is because they look away from, from the battlefield. And the ones who pull the water of their mouths and drink out of it are those who show themselves to be most fit soldiers because they're always aware. And I, I said that is absolutely turning the meaning of the passage on its head. Because everything about that passage is that God is working in spite of those men. He's not picking the best soldiers. He hasn't whittled them down to the elite forces. Those who are most ready as soldiers. He's actually picked them because he wants to show his strength in the midst of that weakness. Okay? So that's Gideon. That's uh, Judges chapter 7. And now... We're in chapter 8. We're looking at the end of Gideon's life. And and, and, and really seeing how he, he finishes. And I, I want to start by, um, with this illustration. Uh, Dick Keyes, in a book called uh, Seeing Through Cynicism. Great book, I recommend it if you haven't read it. 
tells, a, 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 tells about um, Charlotte Bronte, the author of um, Jane Eyre, and how she was received in England after writing this novel. And here's what he says. Charlotte Bronte was attacked by church people in 19th century England as godless and anti-Christian because... Now listen to this. She was attacked as being godless and anti-Christian because in her novel, Jane Eyre, she had undermined the, quote, God-given social order. That this was how her book was received among her contemporaries in England. That, that she was godless for undermining the God-given social order. And what, what has she done? In the end of the novel, she had allowed a mere governess to marry the lord of the manor. And her, uh, the, the Christians around her called her godless and anti-Christian. Now we look at that and we think, well, that's ridiculous. That, that's, that's obviously on its face absurd. There's nothing anti-Christian or godless about that in any rem- remote way. We, we would certainly understand that. And I, and I had to, as I read that, I, I was struck by that, that, that um, reality in 19th century England. And I think we might experience it in our own days, just in different ways. And here's what I, I, I think drives it. Here's what I think drives our desire to take cultural norms... And make them biblical norms. To say that if you are not fitting this sort of norm, whatever it may be, um, then you are not Christian. And there are some of us in this room who want that. And there are some of us, uh, of us in that room who are sick of that reality. But it, it's, it's out there. And here's what, why I th- here's what I think drives it. And it's the title of the sermon. I think we want Christianity to be tidy. I think we want it to be well-defined. I think we want it to be neat. I think we want to weed out all the mess that we can. And if we can set up rules that will help us measure and, uh, what, is, what, is, what is Christian and what is not, and if we, we can set up rules that help us keep out what is unchristian and what is, what is not, then we will pursue those even against the clear teaching of Scripture. What I'm here to tell you, what this passage is here to tell you, is that all attempts to sort of construct Christianity around our own ideas of what it should be instead of what the Scripture should be are sin. It's sin. It's sin for us to declare something to be God's way when it's not. By the way... I'm, I'm now, we have a nine-year-old son. In the time that I've had, we've had a son, there are two extremes in the view of parenting. I, I say extremes. There's two views, and they're on each end of the spectrum. One is scheduling, and one is sort of this strict view of scheduling, or this idea of scheduling. And one is um, no scheduling. It's sort of demand feeding is, is the buzzword in that. And I am not taking sides. Some of you are getting frustrated already, Right? Oh no, what's he going to say? And it's fundamentally wrong. It's sin to prop one of those up as God's way. It just is. And the reason we do that is because we are afraid 
of messiness. We really want Christianity to be tidy. We want all of our, ans- our questions to be answered. We want categories for everything. And Gideon will not let us do it. Remember, I talked about last week how Gideon is a hero of the faith, but it's not a hero. he's not a hero of the faith in the way we've often heard it, at least not growing up with the felt board. Um, right? <laughs> Uh, and I've said this before, I feel sort of guilty about taking down a felt board hero, but, but, but we've got to. We've got, we've got to have our minds reoriented around what the scriptures um, force us to. And there is nothing, nothing tidy about judges. As a matter of fact, I would say if there's anything that judges is about is that this whole thing is a mess. It's a mess. And we will see that again today. I ask that if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Judges chapter 8 starting in verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. God said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because the Ishmaelites, whom they had just defeated, and because they they were Ishmaelites, the people who they just defeated, and they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw it in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerobbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubines who were in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abirzites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their God. And their people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast the the family of Jeroboam, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Please be seated. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you again for this day, this day set aside to worship you, to hear from you. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your mouthpiece. That by your spirit, Christ would show up for his people. That you would set aside the weaknesses and the brokenness of the messenger. 
and put on display the glory of the message. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we pick up at the end of Gideon's life. He has, he has defeated the Midianites. He has uh, routed them. And, and we pick up here with uh, the, the people's response and sort of, I don't know, the conclusion to his life, the summary of, of how he ends, how, how he finishes up. And, and as I think about this, I, I think this might be some of our greatest fears, that, that the last things written about us would be so terrible. I hope you picked it. I mean, it wasn't that hard to see that Gideon doesn't end so well, right? That, that wasn't a surprise to you to hear me say that as you, you read through this. But let's walk through it because I want us to see a couple of things about that. Or, or one main thing, but there's some things we want to talk about as we go through. The first thing we see is that as Gideon comes back from his great def, uh, defeat of the Midianites, uh, his rout of them, the, the people ask him to be king. They ask him to rule over them. And, he, and, and what we see in their request is when they say, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, for you have saved us from the hand of, of, the Midian, uh, of Midian. What they're asking is for a dynast, dynastic kingship. They're asking for him to be placed on, on, in the position of king in Israel and for his, his um, children to therefore then reign over Israel as long as I guess he has children. They're, they're asking for a king, a dynasty of, of Gideon. And Gideon, for, well, first thing I want you to see is that's not in and of itself bad. The desire for a king is, is not the problem. Uh, we, we know all the way back from, I would say, Genesis 3.15, that the promise of a seed, a promise of one who would crush the head of a serpent, the idea of, of one who would rule over and defend and defeat the enemies of God's people has, has been embedded in the minds of, of God's people. We see in Genesis 49 the blessing on Judah, that, that the scepter will never depart from his hand. So all the way back in Genesis 49, even in Israel, there's this idea of kingship. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God says, when you come to the land that the Lord God has given you, this is verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17, that the Lord God has given you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. So embedded in, in, in the, the, the reality of, of them going into the land was the idea of a king. Their desires for peace from enemies, their desire for peace in the land, their desire to, I don't know, raise a crop and eat of it without fear of, of their neighbor certainly makes sense to us. A desire for stability and security, a desire for righteousness and mercy. But we can see immediately, or we can see in their question, how their, their thinking is off, right? You look back down there, and, and they say, um, you have saved us. So they're, they're, they're misconstruing what's happened with Gideon. They're looking at him, and then they're placing their hope in him. And they're not giving credit to Yahweh, their God, for saving them. They have said, you do this because you have saved us. So it's not the desire for a king, it's their perception of what that king is and who Gideon is and why they've asked him to be king that is at fault. They misunderstand their deliverance. They don't understand that it's Yahweh who has both pursued and delivered them. 
He has established covenant with them. He has promised to be their God. And it seems as if they've forgotten this and they've placed their hopes in Gideon. In that sense, the king reflects their own sense of glory, their own sense of what security and stability would look like. And it, leaves the, it leads them down a path uh, of false hope. It leads them down the path of what the, Bible, uh, of what the scriptures say, they, of turning back to their idols. Because they have set their hope falsely in Gideon and away from God. Secondly, then we need to look at Gideon's response. First thing I want you to see is that he answers correctly, right? He says um, in verse 23, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He, he turns their request back on them in the threefold use of the word rule. There in, the, in, in that verse, it, it, it gives it emphasis. It makes it emphatic that he's not going to do this. And, and he, he ends with, it's the Lord is, is the one who rules over you, Yahweh. But what I want you to see is even in his response, uh, we see Gideon on the slide that leads to the end of the passage. Some of it's implicit, and you may feel a little uncomfortable with reading into silence. So I'm going to start there, but you'll see that even if the first one's not true, the rest of them are there. But the first thing we see is, is silence to their request, that he does not correct them. He doesn't say, no, it's not I that has saved you. See, that's what they say. You have saved us, then you be our king. And he doesn't correct that. He implicitly accepts that assessment of, his, of their deliverance. And if you remember back, if, you, if you're familiar with uh, Judges chapter 7, and I know all of you who are here remember my sermon on it, you'll remember that when Gideon goes out and, and fights the, the Midianites, after God has sort of cajoled him into doing it, right? If you remember, he, he, uh, the, the thing that really convinces him to do it, is that he overhears the Midianites. He doesn't trust the word of the Lord. He doesn't trust God. He doesn't trust the fleece test. But finally, when he hears from the lips of the Midianites that this barley roll, this dream has happened, and the Midianites are going to be routed, then he, then he decides to go forward and fight the Midianites. And when he goes forward, what does he say? He says, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And I think in that phrase, in that statement, we see this subtle uh, misunderstanding, this corruption in how Gideon thinks about himself, that he really is the one that's delivering him. By the way, he doesn't have a sword. He's carrying pots and a, and a torch. And here, again, he implicitly accepts their assessment that he is the one that's delivered them. Okay, if you're not comfortable with that, if you think that's reading too much into a silence, Look at what he, he goes on to do. And Gideon said to them, Let me make just one request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from this spoil. And the reason he picks earrings is because the Ishmaelites wore earrings. And once, uh, once they've given him, they, it says they willingly do this. They spread a cloth. They start pouring out the spoils of their war onto this cloth. Comes out to 1,700 shekels, which I did the math, is 680 grams which is worth about $650,000 uh, at the current gold value. Not bad, right, for a day's work. 
I don't know what that would calculate to in terms of his wealth at that moment uh, in the ancient Near East, but I would imagine that that's a lot of, of money. 50, almost 50 pounds of gold plus the other things that, that are listed there. The, uh, the ornaments and the pendants and the garments, the, the collars worn around the, the, the camels, the, the necks of the camels. What does that matter? Well, Gideon has no right to do that. Gideon has actually done what you would expect an ancient Near Eastern, Near Eastern king to do. Uh, uh, the king would, would uh, the, the, the soldiers would bring the spoils of war and they would give a portion of it to their king. And he has, by this request, put himself in the position of king. He has is, he is taken on the trappings of kings. Uh, we're told later on, down in verse 30, that Gideon has 70 sons. I, I don't know how you figure this out, but some commentators have looked at this and they figured out that that would be about 14 wives that it would take to, for him to have 70 sons. Deuteronomy 17, going back to the statement about uh, a king in the land, says this, Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to requ- acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. There's, there's a linkage between multiple wives, many wives, and his understanding of his status as king. We don't know what happens in the meantime, how he sets himself up in Ophrah, but maybe he does actually set himself up as king And what we see is though his answer is theologically correct, his actions betray something else. If that's not enough for you, look down in verse 31. One of his concubines, so this is a woman on the side, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called him Abimelech, which translated means, my father is king. Gideon named his son, my father is king. So, no matter what he says, no matter the theological correctness of his initial response, his, his, everything that he does from that moment forward betrays that he has taken on the trappings of kingship, that he has actually undermined the very thing that he said, that he is not, uh, he is not in himself looking at Yahweh as king, but is taking on the position and privilege of king himself. Then we get to the ephod and the whole idea that he would build, a, a make an ephod out of the, the, the spoils of war is, is more betrayal that Gideon is completely confused about his role and taking on uh, a position in his society that he has no business taking on. The ephod. The ephod was given for the, to, the, to Aaron, the, pri- the high priest. It was to be worn by the high priest. We're told in Exodus 28, we're given the description of how it's to be made and constructed. We're told that it was made for glory and for beauty. It was a sort of smock worn by the high priest. And on the shoulder straps were uh, two onyx stones. And engraved on those onyx stones were the, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that was to represent, or, or to sh- picture 
The fact that when the high priest went into the, the tabernacle to offer up sacrifices, he was carrying with him all the tribes of Israel. And Gideon makes himself an ephod. He makes himself a gar- garment that was worn by the high priest. Also in the breastplate of, of the ephod was the Urim and the Thummim. The, the, the stones that were used by the high priest to discern the will of God. And so what appears to be going on in Gideon's uh, taking this ephod and setting it up in his hometown is he's looking at Shiloh and the high priest and the tabernacle that God has established and he's saying, look, I need more direct access than that. I need, I need God closer to me than that. I, I, need, I need my own uh, way to, to discern God's will. I need to be, uh, have the tabernacle and access to that here at my home. And he's actually put himself in the place of the high, uh, of, of, as a high priest, I guess. And he's rejected, in a sense, the tabernacle that God established and the ephod and the whole priestly system that God has established and exists in Shiloh. Gideon has completely misunderstood himself. He's misunderstood what is going on in God's use of him. And though he's theologically correct in his answer, he's a hypocrite. Complete. He's a thoroughgoing hypocrite. And his hypocrisy is such that we're told that his ephod becomes a snare to Gideon and his family. And then we're told that all of Israel whores themselves after it. That's how Gideon finishes. That's what the Bible records. That's what the Bible wants us to know about Gideon. That's crazy, right? We don't think that way. We think about Gideon and we want to think about somebody who we can emulate, who we could follow. And, and if, if, if that scares you, if it scares you, if you've ever thought, Lord, I don't want something like that written on my tombstone, that, that, that my sin caused my uh, people to whore themselves after a false god and, and, and a, a, an image and to lead them into idolatry. That's the story the Bible wants you to see about Gideon. And it, and it drops into our view of tidiness. Our view of, of how to construct our world and our lives. So that nothing like that would ever be said about us. And, and it just scatters the pieces around. Because we can't make Gideon tidy. We can't. As much as we want to, I, I, think it's, I, I think it's interesting. I know this may bother you, but the Bible does it twice. It says they whore after it. That, that language, the earthiness of it, the language that we wouldn't really want to use in sort of our normal daily uh, conversations, the Bible pulls on it because it wants to expose what is going on for what it really is. And it will not let us look away without first seeing this is what happens in Gideon, in his life, in one of the, 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 one of the best judges in one sense, 
And the reason I can say that is, is because uh, verse 28, we have this refrain, it's the last one we hear, about the rest that comes to the land. But this is the, le- the longest period of rest that, is ever, that has come to the people during this time. And we're told it's 40 years. Sort of a, a, a number of, of biblical completeness. 40 years of rest through the hand of Gideon and yet his legacy is that he leaves an idol back where he tore down the bales of his father and he just constructs it out of his own religious trappings, right? See, his idol is not a bale. It's actually a high priestly ephod. He's actually taken his religious understanding and he's through that and through, uh, through uh, creating it in a way that is not according to God's will and plan and revelation in the scriptures. He has led his people into sin. What I want you to see then is that there's two forms of, of, sort of, our, of constructed tidiness in this passage. The first is theological precision that hides the lie behind it. The theological answer, the theological correctness that hides uh, what's really below the surface, what our real motives are, what our real desires are, where our real sin is. The second one is, is a, a desire for our own direct access to God. But I want us to think about how we do that. How do we live in, in theological precision? There are some of us in this room tonight, or, or the, today, who who are hiding dark sins behind theological precision. We find safety in the fact that we can carry on this conversation in a theological manner, that we know the definitions of certain theological terms, that we can talk about justification and sanctification, that we can give the, the catechism questions and answers. And yet there's, we're lying. We're lying. Some of those sins are great. Some of those sins may be just hiding insecurities. Hiding desires for approval. Some of it may be hiding, hiding deep, dark sexual sins. Sins in your family. Brokenness between you and your spouse. Abuse in your home. And we think because we've given the theologically precise answer that we're safe. Some ways we do this are, I don't know, we discipline our children, but we discipline them because we're embarrassed by their behavior, not because they're sinning. That's sin. That's a theological way of hiding because what you're saying is I'm trying to instruct and discipline my child in the way of the Lord, right? That's what you're supposed to be doing. But really, you're just trying to get them to act right so they don't embarrass you at the grocery store or to your neighbor or to your family, to your mother and your dad. Some of us refuse to discipline for the very same reasons. 
We refuse to engage, and maybe we hide behind the language of grace and mercy, but we refuse to engage, and we have a spouse that's dying because we won't engage. We have children who, who, who are um, struggling, but we're so afraid of the messiness of it all, and we just can't deal with it that we sit back and do nothing because we bought into the, the lie that somehow if I'm doing things right, that all of this is supposed to work out a certain way. And so we sit and we do nothing. We let people suffer in silence in our families, in our homes, people around us that we love. Either one is a, is a way of being theologically hypocritical. Some of us exasperate our children with our house rules. That we think order, and this is me by the way, I, I, I confess this along the way that um, I love my books, and I like my books to be on the shelf a certain way, and I remember trying to manage my son, you know, a two-year-old, to not touch my books. Don't touch my books. And I would get up, and I could be doing anything, and if my son was in there meddling with the thing that I had constructed, this thing that I had made neat and orderly and tidy, and I would go in there and I would move him away from my books. And that's, that's when I'll tell you there are other ways that I have shamefully exasperated my son with the rules that I've created to keep my world neat and tidy. And it's sin. It's sin. I've said this when we hide secret sins behind theological precision. We define Christianity by a set of cultural preferences. This happens even in lingo. There's certain lingo that we trade in, right? And if somebody doesn't know the lingo or somebody stops and questions the lingo and says, does that really mean, I don't know if I'm going to buy into that lingo, I'd like to know what it means. And we sort of think, well, who are you? You're not one of us. If you don't buy into this lingo, then you're not one of us. Dress, politics, schooling, all forms of, of cultural preferences that we foist upon people to keep them neat and categorized and it belies a sin and a hypocrisy. The other form of tidiness, I said, is direct access. Gideon, I, we, I think, commentators seem to agree that the whole reason he builds this, this garment is because he wants access. He wants, he wants to be able to use the, 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 the Urim and the Thummim to, to receive God's will for him, to receive God's word. And so he doesn't want to go to Shiloh. He doesn't want to stay within God's appointed means, if you will. Some of us in here, maybe you're just barely here. Maybe you're just visiting. And, and, and your life is really marked by a refusal to submit or commit to a local body. I mean, we live sort of in a, a, a part of the world where that seems to be the order of the day, right? Where it, it, there's... there's so many churches, yet there's so many people that we know who can't find one that they can have anything to do with. And if that's you, I would just, just submit to you that the Bible believes that the messiness of the church that you may despise and that may frustrate you and, frustrate you and maybe, maybe even has wounded you, and I'll give you all of that, that that's true. But what this is saying is that God works there. That God has appointed this place 
And so to find, uh, to attempt to find direct access by sleeping in or fishing or whatever it is that you might do to find God is, is not biblical. The way I say it to my students often is, if you want to love Jesus, then love his bride. It seems pretty basic. It seems like it would be hard to say you love Jesus and to hate the very thing he's come to redeem. We seek direct access. We refuse to believe that Christ could work through the mess of a local body. We get impatient with his appointed means of grace. We don't believe that the preaching of the word and the faithful administration of the sacraments really is enough. I'm not saying it's everything, but it's enough. That life is found here. And so we set up our own ways and our own means. We construct our own ephods to find access to God. Some of us have come from ministries that promise direct access to God. That promise that you can have an unmediated experience. That you don't need to have the church or the scriptures to hear from God. And I will just uh, submit to you that that at least has the uh, very real potential of leading you down a path of being ensnared by your own devices, your own sense of God, your own sense of glory, your own sense of grace, your own sense of His calling, your own sense of whatever. That these things that God has brought into our lives, like the tabernacle and the high priest in Gideon's life, were meant to correct him from the folly of his own devices. And Gideon doesn't take it. He pursues his own. I want you to note then that all of this is done in the trappings and language of religion. That this is not something that we do apart from our religion. It's actually uh, done in, in the trappings of our religion. It, it takes on the language and, and the um, posture of being faithful. To all that God has called, we even give it the right names. And yet at its root, it's sinful and broken. It leads to idolatry and, and um, being ensnared. We tend, to, and I, I think there's a couple reasons we do this. And I'll just say these two. I have others listed here. Or uh, One motivation. One is that we, I think we really are in denial of the depth of our own need and sin. And one theme through Judges, one theme through certainly Gideon, but all of Judges, is, is, is trying to drive at the depth of our need. It's trying to drive at the depth of how broken we really are, how messy we really are, how broken we really are. And, and it, wants, it wants us to look unflinchingly flinchingly at that reality. To not be afraid to lift the rug and see what's underneath. Because God is not. And what happens when we deny the depth of our own need is that we, uh, we become blind to the true glory of the King. See, what Gideon misses and what the people of God miss in this text is, is the one who has done it all. The one who has delivered them. And what's so pr profound about this reality is that in the midst of how broken and messed up they really are, they do not see that God is with them. This should strike you. I don't know, I, as I read this and I talk about Gideon, some of you may actually be sitting there thinking, 
You know, if we had the cartoon bubble up out of your head, you might be thinking, is Gideon a Christian? If this is how Gideon's life really ends up, is Gideon one of us? How many of you have thought that this morning? Is Gideon, is Gideon one of us? And what, I, what Gideon shows up in Hebrews 11 as one of the, uh, one of the examples of faith. He can't be there if he's not one of us. Gideon is a Christian. I would submit to you he's a normal Christian. That, that his messiness and his brokenness, his confusion, his, his, the fact that his life doesn't end well, do some of you hope, do you hope, do you rest your hope in your, in your family and, and as you grow older, you look at your children's sin and you begin to, uh, uh, the, the, the foundation feels like it's shifting out from under you because you think if your children fail in their faith or if they walk down paths of sin and brokenness, that somehow you're failing and that you cannot stand before God uh, clear and, and, and forgiven. Do you look at your life and think if those things don't work out according to my sense of neatness and, and, and uh, propriety, I don't know what I'm trying to think of another word, neatness, tidiness. If my children fail, if my marriage is, is broken, can I really have a place with God? And some of you are deeply afraid because those things are out of place and out of sorts. That you don't have a place with God. Last thing I want you to see is that the reason, the reason that we find, the hope that we find in this passage is that God actually uses Gideon. Brings 40 years of peace to the land. Some of you look at your lives and you think, that God will not use you because you're a mess. You think that God is waiting for you to get those things ordered before he will let you really in. You feel like an outsider, though you want to be an insider. You feel like you're a, a, an orphan, though the Bible says you're a son. And the reason that that can be so is because Jesus... Jesus, when the opportunity came, when he was in the wilderness, when he was faced by his enemy, when, when, the, um, when the devil came to him and tempted him and set the world in front of him and said, I will give you all of this. You have to imagine that there's something in Jesus that wanted to rise up at that moment and squash him, to crush him. And yet Jesus did not seize glory. He did not grasp after these things. He submitted to death. He submitted to his own enemy. He submitted to the uh, judgment and punishment that was ours. He refused to take hold of these things that we seek so that we might have life. And because of that, God is okay with the fact that we're messy. He really is. I'm not saying sin doesn't matter. I'm not saying you don't need to repent of your sin. I'm just saying that if, God, if, if God's priority was to fix you or to have people who weren't messy, he would have left us off a long time ago. And he hasn't. He hasn't because Christ has secured your salvation. He has secured mercy and grace for us. The cross becomes the place where we understand what it means to be a Christian. And there is no way for us to tidy 
up the cross. It's bloody and messy. An innocent man hangs for the crimes of the guilty. Taking up this reality, understanding that in our messiness and understanding that in owning us, it puts in relief the grace of God found in Christ. That those two things go hand in hand. I know you've heard that before, but our understanding of grace rises and falls with our understanding of our own need and sin. And as we do that, here's what I hope for Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I hope that we become a church or that we grow in our pursuit as a church of sinners, not tidiness. Not people who dress like us and talk like us, but people who are broken and hurting and lost. It creates a church that's willing to live with the messiness. This takes patience and kindness. It takes gentleness because messy people aren't readily fixed. They don't, fit, they don't work according to our time schedule and our time frames. It takes a willingness to find our identity as a, as a body in the cross of Jesus Christ. Not what other people think of us. This actually makes it risky for us. Because to be counted among sinners means that our reputation may be harmed by outsiders. We may be accused of things that we would not uh, want to be accused of. But Jesus certainly sets the pattern as one who was friend of sinners and accused of all kinds of things. Because he was willing to walk with them in the midst of their mess. See, as we understand this reality, as we set aside our own conceived ideas, our self-conceived ideas of what is tidy and what is neat and what is Christian, and we get into the heart of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Bible, we begin to see that the church and the gospel is for people like you. People like me. People who need to come to a place and hear that they're welcome. No matter what. That there's a place for them and there is a message of life and hope for them. We do not take matters in our own uh, hands even though the church appears ineffective at times. We trust in Christ's kingship. We trust in his word. And we live in the mess. That's what I pray for Redeemer. That's what I pray for you in your own life. If you're here today and... You're thinking, you don't know my mess. You have no idea what you're talking about. What I'm here to say is that if the Bible has a place for Gideon, it has a place for you. If the, guy, if the Bible will take Gideon and prop him up, or not prop him up in, in a negative way, but show him forth as one who is an example of faith in Jesus Christ, then the Bible has a place for you and your mess. May God make it so by his grace.